The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, Dr. Eric L. Culumbra, or Annie Deladonis. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 4th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Now it's 91 days before the general November 3rd election. Today, rolling out UCI's School of Pharmaceutical Sciences is the founding dean, Jan Hurst. She talks about building this institution and the opportunities it offers researchers and students before, during, and after the pandemic. Then, in the second segment, UCI political science professor Tony Smith covers the Joe Biden vice presidential nominee naming sweepstake as that rapidly unfolds. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. It's official. UCI's School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences was approved by the UC Board of Regents. My first guest today on the show is that school's founding dean, Dr. Jan Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch has been the principal investigator for sequential studies, which resulted in the creation and validation of a disease-specific instrument to assess the impact of gout symptoms known as the gout impact scale. She's also served as a principal investigator in co-PI for several studies evaluating the clinical, economic, and humanistic outcomes for patients receiving novel pharmacy services, hypertension, mental health, diabetes, HIV, AIDS, and immunizations. She was principal investigator for National Institutes of Health funded project examining the comparative effectiveness of pharmacist-provided medication therapy management services within medical group practices. Prior to joining UCI last year, she was a clinical pharmacy professor at the University of California, San Diego, was the director of clinical research at Prescription Solutions, director of global pharmacoeconomic strategy and research at Allergan, lead of international pharmacoeconomic research at GlaxoSmithKline and was a professor of pharmacy administration at UNC Chapel Hill. She completed both her bachelor's of science in pharmacy and her PhD in pharmacy administration at the University of South Carolina. She comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Dr. Jen Hirsch. Thank you, Claudia, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to join your show today. Thank you kindly. Well, congratulations on launching this new school known as Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at UC Irvine. The formal approval given by the Board of Regents yesterday as a recording of this interview I'm doing is today, July 31st. So congratulations. Great. Thank you so much for that. It's a really exciting time for us here at um, UC Irvine. And so let's have you talk then, Dr. Hirsch, about the institution that you're building and the opportunities. We'll talk a little bit more about the specific to the pandemic 
later on the interview. What are you trying to break ground with? What are you trying to innovate with your school here at UCI? Sure, happy to do so. First off, and you made the point, and I'm glad you made the point, is that this is not just a pharmacy school. It is a school of pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences. And, and that's very important um, because what we are doing is we are building on to a, a really strong program that's already here of pharmaceutical sciences. Basically what we're doing is we're adding a doctor of pharmacy program to the foundation on pharmaceutical sciences that's here with a bachelor's degree already. They have a master's degree and PhD programs. So all of that's in place. The new degree that we're adding is the Doctor of Pharmacy, or it's called the PharmD program, starting in the fall of 2021. All the other programs they're are ongoing. up and yes, exactly. They're up and running and going. So we're building on that strong foundation. And what we're creating, really, in my mind, is a high quality, great value, public school of pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences. We have a great opportunity here because we are part, an integral part of the um, Susan and Henry Samueli College of Health Sciences, um, which has three other health sciences school in the College of Health Sciences. There's a school of medicine, a school of nursing, and a soon-to-be school of population health. And we're the fourth one, the School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. And in that College of Health Sciences, we also, there is a Institute, the Susan Samueli Institute for Integrative Health, that's part of this also. And, and that's really important because that's looking at the whole patient and taking a holistic approach to treating disease in the patient and or preventing disease. And you can see where we have two parts of our school. We have this really strong science, pharmaceutical sciences program that's here already. Um, in fact, their productivity level on ranks in the top 10 of pharmaceutical sciences programs in the U.S. And we're adding on now for the PharmD program, a Department of Clinical Pharmacy Practice. And that's where we bring in clinical faculty members. So we're putting those two together. And when you do that, we really have a portfolio of education, research, and clinical service that's going to be consistent with the nation's top pharmacy schools. So we're really excited about this opportunity. So what will make this in this program, this grouping of programs, what will make you more compelling than the next one, <laughs> whether in California, west of the Mississippi or nationally, what's the draw for the best students that you wanna recruit nationally and I guess internationally as well, correct? Yes, for the whole school, definitely, nationally and internationally, you know, because we have such a broad um, breadth of our degree programs. For the PharmD specifically, it will probably be more nationally just because of there are licensure types of issues that are, that are more specific to, to a specific um, nation, um, in this case, the U.S. So basically, a, a few of the things I think that we can offer are that the, the school itself, we do have this very broad uh, spectrum of programs to, uh, to offer. We're not just a school, a PharmD program. We have this very large BS program. And one of the things that we're going to be able to do with that BS program, and the BS program is in pharmaceutical sciences. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our students, 85% actually, of our current BS in pharmaceutical sciences students do go on to um, PharmD programs. UCI just has not had one for them to matriculate to. 
But one of the things we're going to be able to offer now that we've added the PharmD program is we'll be able to offer an accelerated Bachelor of Science program that will allow some students to move into the PharmD program that we have, and therefore they can complete their PharmD, their BS PharmD program in um, seven years, as opposed to what would normally take eight years. So we're really excited about that as a differentiator for our school. And the other thing I, I've already mentioned uh, about the whole College of Health Sciences, having those four professional schools uh, is a major advantage for us in offering interprofessional education and collaborative research across those schools, whether it's within the clinical realm or within the more uh, basic sciences realm. And we're, we're building on that. And again, I mentioned the um, integrative health thread. That's a, that's a thread that's going to run through all of the schools in the College of Health Sciences, but certainly within um, pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences, uh, that's very important for our clinicians, the clinical side of our school, teaching pharmacists about how to treat the whole patient with conventional medications, prescription, over-the-counter, but, but also supplements. A lot of people are taking supplements, and we need to educate patients on the evidence base for those products or, or the lack of evidence base in, in some cases. But also from our pharmaceutical sciences side, the research side of the school, we're looking at integrative health too, because we have researchers um, that are looking at mechanisms of action for how are herbs and other supplements working and plants, et cetera, because there's a long history of medicinal products coming from plants. So I think it, those things really stand out in my mind as differentiators for the, the UCI School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. So there are a lot of things wrapped into a, several kind of questions that overlap one another. I want to get at, so you're developing, forming this School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, and I want to get a handle on, you're talking about the Samueli School of Sciences. You've also got the School of Medicine here, the mm -hmm. faculty from physical sciences, that these amazing things that the chemists are doing over there, the School of Public Health, the School of Management, the Stem Cell Center, the Sue and Bill Gross Stem Cell Center, uh, that the Center for the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine is maybe continuing after this bond, maybe passes in the fall. <laughs> uh, the UCI Center for the State of Cannabis, just to name a few of any. So how are you incorporating those programs? And is maybe is the Samueli Charter, like, is that like a large kind of guiding principle that the pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences school is going to be abiding by? while sort of working and pulling together from different faculty in those other schools I was just mentioning. Right, um, I think the thing you're referring to is it's just the whole collaborative nature of um, research and also clinical practice. And so I can say that just the existing Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences that's been here over 10 years, they have joint appointments in other programs in our UCI campus, such as physical sciences, chemistry, and biology, um, and, and others. Um, but then there are others in those other programs that have joint appointments in our pharmaceutical sciences faculty also. And the nature of research nowadays is really team-oriented. You know, research in you know, pharmaceuticals or devices or diagnostics, all of which our pharmaceutical um, sciences faculty do, it's so complex and you really have to be looking at, you know, the biology of something, the mechanisms of action, the chemistry of it, 
and then as stem cells, all the things you've mentioned, it all comes together. So already our pharmaceutical sciences faculty are, are very um, integrated, I, I would say, into the UCI um, campus, other departments, you know, as well as outside collaborations with other companies, et cetera. Adding the clinical faculty is going to be the same thing. And the clinical faculty are probably going to be overlapping more with the other schools that are inside the um, College of Health Sciences because they are more on the um, health profession side as opposed to the more basic science side. And so certainly within the College of Health Sciences, that's in, in the Samuelis, that is actually what they wanted to create. They wanted to create something where there's interprofessional education and interprofessional pro, um, practice. And we have these team-based care and that's the future of healthcare. And we're educating in that way, thanks to their very generous gift. Um, and we're, we're doing the interprofessional practice that comes next and training for practice in our um, academic medical center, um, which, is, which is just a great opportunity for, for us. I guess looking at maybe, I don't know what how many thousand foot level over the school here, that looking at Susan Samueli, I think she is all in with legacy building. Is that something that is a factor that maybe drew you to come to UCI last year or and get is this is this something that is an asset that you could never find anywhere else? You know, how, how does that work for you as a founding dean, the kind of legacies that the Samuelis are envisioning? They're, I mean, they're involved all over the campus, but this integrated medicine, that's her baby. I have to say that the, the legacy building, that's an interesting way to put that. And I, I only met the Samuelis when I first interviewed here. Mm -hmm. and I've interacted with them you know, a good bit since. And, and you're right, that is what they're doing. And truthfully, this whole College of Health Sciences concept is one of the very main things that lured me here. And I even use that word to our provost. It is luring me here because having the opportunity to work across professions and to also have research across these schools is very, very rare. And then to have the patient whole health treatment perspective going across those is even rarer. And, and that's really where medicine is going nowadays and, and with the healthcare system. And, you know, our healthcare system needs help. And, right. I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to talk about the policy a little bit. Uh, just for those who may have just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Jan Hirsch. She's the founding dean of UC Irvine's School of Pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences. It's a, the, there have been pharmaceutical programs at UCI for the last 10 years, but she's talking about now that the Board of Regents just approved yesterday, this school of formulating now, it's official. The only thing that's new and starting in fall 2021 is that one PharmD degree program. That's it. Okay. Everything else is as it's been ongoing for 10 plus years. Right, right. So, <laughs> but I, I'd like to get though at the sort of the nitty gritty part of what research universities charters are developing in pharmacies respect pathways. What are you planning to set up as pathways of the medical research in pharmacy in terms of medical chemistry, in terms of experimental and clinical pharmacology and uh, pharmaceutical technology? Right. Um, 
What I can say is we have an opportunity here and we're building this out because if you think about the research continuum of um, medical research, it starts with discovery, right? Discovery of compounds, wherever those may be, discovery of new diagnostics. It's on the discovery side. And mm -hmm. then we move that through a development process. And if it's drugs, we go to clinical trials and somewhat with diagnostics and devices also. Mm -hmm. So we move it along a continuum. And then whatever the new discovery is tested and it's safe and it's effective. And then we move it out until real populations of people utilizing whatever that is. And I'll use the drug as an example. Okay. Uh, utilizing that drug. And then when you start utilizing that drug in large populations of people, as opposed to a very controlled clinical trial, the small number of patients, you start seeing one, how people are really going to use the, pro the drug. Are they going to be adherent to it, et cetera. But you also see side effects popping up that you might not have seen in those controlled trials. Okay. So the research you need to do continues all the way from that discovery, which we do think about maybe first, but all the way out to utilizing the drugs in patient populations and the type of research that you do along that research continuum differs. At the beginning, it's, it is a lot of chemistry um, and then moves on to more pharmacology. And certainly the technology comes into play when we're actually somewhat discovering, yes, but also on the clinical side of the continuum with patients utilizing drugs or devices you know, to improve health or wellness. So if you think about our school that we're developing, and again, this was a big draw to me, is we had that strong pharmaceutical sciences department. We're adding on clinical department with clinical research. And what we're creating is a continuum of research from discovery all the way out to clinical research in individual patients through research in patient populations to see what's really working and what's cost effective where it all started for you. And I've, I've been practicing this pharmacoeconomics, correct? That's, <laughs> exactly. and that's, that's where you are. So, well, uh, could you talk about the trends then? We, you're sort of, uh, we're alluding that a little bit, where pharmacists are increasingly in demand at the healthcare delivery setting versus the community pharmacy. That was one of your town halls that I listened to. So talk a little bit about that before we move into some of the really heady discussion of the pandemic factors that cause us all to focus a lot more closely on with an alarm going sure. off. Yeah, sure. The role of the pharmacist is changing, it's evolving, I mean, and it has been evolving. And a basic way of looking at that is um, the role is changing from being a dispenser or a purveyor of products, the individual um, drug products that you buy in a pharmacy, to one is changing to a role of where the pharmacist is delivering healthcare directly to the patient. And so regardless of a product of what medication, the pharmacists are now sitting down with patients and discussing all of their medications and sort, basically sorting it out for them and helping them reduce medication regimen complexity, helping them find ways to be more adherent to their medications, helping patients to see maybe the drugs that they're taking are causing side effects. It's hard to tell, right? Mm. Um, but sitting down and just sorting out with the patient is, is so valuable. And that's what the new role of pharmacist is evolving to. And, and that's, this is happening many, many places. And in doing that, the pharmacist is serving as the medication expert as a service, not necessarily tied to a product. 
And that's the other piece of the future of healthcare is practicing in healthcare teams. And that's where in the pharmacist case, they're serving as a medication expert, certainly to the patient, but also to their healthcare team that they're working on to the, the physician. It's usually your physician and nurse in those teams and, and sometimes population health experts. And that team works together to provide the best solutions for the patient or a population of patients, if you're looking at it from that perspective. So I think that's how pharmacy is changing um, to be directly patient care on that team-based approach. And then the other thing I would say, and it relates directly back to our school and that far, strong pharmaceutical sciences underpinning is medications and treatments and understanding of disease is becoming so complex. It is really important for the pharmacists that we train to be very well grounded in science because everything's going to change as soon as they graduate. And they have to be able to keep up with the pace of science because that drives the pace of clinical practice and innovations. So there's a couple of ways I'm looking at there, not so much socialization, but the real, the training. I don't know if this would be, I don't know pharmaceutical programs around the country, but I, are you concerned about addressing how your trained pharmacists are able to work with the clientele? You know, how, how they're, I mean, there's a, there's a large piece about that interface of taking what they've learned and dealing with the public, the, the consumer. And then the other aspect was about the aspect being, is there when you're talking about the complexities of pharmaceutical, in pharmaceutical sciences, is there a sort of specialization creep in there? And that it's in order to be an effective pharmaceutical scientist or, an, or a pharmacist practicing in clinical settings and all that, that you, that the specialization may uh, take part to deal with the complexities. And we're going to have very, very specific kinds of pharmacists at at some point, very, very soon. So I'll take two, those, those two points there. Yes. One, let me go back to the, um, well, the, the strong science underpinning of, yes. the, of, of the education of the pharmacist. Correct. Of that. And because medications are complex, et cetera. Part of the education of a pharmacist is communication. We have a lot of emphasis on communication because they need to be able to do exactly what you're saying is that they need to be able to take all of this very complex information that's in their head and, and they need to be able to translate it down to or across to a patient level, a layman's term. And oftentimes they're dealing with health literacy problems or just people that really just don't understand. And most people, including myself, until you get a disease, you don't really even know what it is. You know, pharmacists are trained in, in all pharmacy schools to make that um, translation to the patient's level. Yeah, and, and that's very important to, to know. And then your other question about, I guess, really specialization within yes. pharmacy practice, um, that already happens. And where it does happen is we, there is board certification for different specialties within pharmacy, and it's, it's been around for quite some time. Okay. Um, it is by disease state, because what normally happens is a pharmacist might start to specialize in, let's say, geriatrics mm -hmm. or oncology. Um, and there is board certification in geriatrics and oncology, just as with physician education. And those pharmacists, you usually will find them working in teams, healthcare teams already, in more um, inpatient or more acute care settings, 
or more of what we would call ambulatory care settings, which are associated with hospitals, but it is an outpatient setting. So the, the care that the patients are receiving there anyway is more um, tense, less generalist. But what I would like to say, because I don't want to mislead anyone, I, I think, because you've mentioned community pharmacy a few times here, I think all the things that we've talked about, team-based care, the somewhat the specialization, the patient care services, all that can be done in any setting, whether it's community mm-hmm. pharmacy, whether it's a hospital, whether it's managed care, ambulatory care. The community setting is, it has so much value to offer. One of the things we need to overcome is having the community pharmacists have access to the same information that a pharmacist might have that's practicing within a health system. But that's being overcome pretty quickly with um, technology and, and electronic medical record sharing. So I think it's not really a setting-based thing. The, all of the pharmacy um, profession is changing to more patient care. Thank you. So now to the pandemic. It's really, we're looking at an all-hands-on-deck collaboration. Everyone on campus is either they're advancing a treatment or it's a cure for COVID-19. With, there's the vaccine race. There's the treatments that are known a little bit now in the public, the remdesivir and the mm-hmm. avitadil, I guess. And there's convalescent plasma and, and there may be others. As the dean now of this new school, what incentives are under your control to foster collaboration and maintain efficiencies for delivering as soon as possible. So it's interesting you say in, incentives. Um, actually, I've found, at least with certainly within our pharmaceutical scientists group, incentives are not really needed so much. Um, they want to They're find given. cures. Yeah. They want to do this. And it, I can say that the University of California on um, Irvine has provided um, seed funding for all researchers to apply for, for the COVID um, pandemic. And that has been, I think, a very successful program. I can say, and I'll talk a second here about what our pharmaceutical scientists are doing uh, with COVID. And really, they are pursuing a broad range of research related to vaccines for prevention, but also um, testing mechanisms for diagnosis and discovering new antiviral drugs themselves for treatment. So across the spectrum from prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. We have a subgroup of our pharmaceutical scientists um, that actually work with RNA, and your listeners might be familiar with that because the uh, virus that causes COVID-19 is an RNA virus. Yes. And our researchers have been working on RNA for other things many, many years. But now they've pivoted and they've changed um, their focus to, and using their RNA expertise really to create synthetic sort of non-natural RNA analogs that, for example, will um, fluoresce or glow when they detect the virus. And that would help with diagnoses, you could see. Also analogs that could seek out the natural RNA virus and in the body and then deactivate it before it has a chance to uh, spread widely. So those are just a couple of examples of some of the really you know, promising research is going on just within our department. And it's going on across um, UCI and in all the schools and and departments. So as a dean, is there any added part of your managing this that's it's on you to to make the most of how the collaboration 
is working. Because I, I, some benches are, are, that's in their DNA for collaboration and some are maybe not so much, but how, what's your role as a dean make this all work? I think I'm very lucky that the people I work with now, it is in their DNA um, to collaborate. They're already doing it. But my role as a dean is to facilitate that you know, as much as possible. And, and sometimes that's making connections, that's making sure people know about information, um, that's also making sure if there are things that I can support as part of the school financially, I will do that. Finding other ways to support their research financially as across the campus and outside. Those are all things that I would do as a dean. Another thing that I've been very busy doing, and I think to your point, it's, it's the pandemic. And you might not think about it, but we have people going back into the research labs to do this very important research. My job is to make sure they're safe. My job is to make sure we have controls in place and we have protocols that any of these researchers and their staff, they're safe. And that's first and foremost in my mind. And so we do have very strict protocols and that the UC Irvine has set down and we follow those. And we're very, very serious about that. So I just want to, as we draw down our time together, give you a, another go at, another bite at the apple, the, the admissions, the recruitment apple. What, in terms of the, what is going on in the catastrophic setting of dealing with the pandemic, what in the competition for getting the best possible pharmaceutical either undergrad or the PhD candidates that you're recruiting across the country, what is your pitch to have them come to this school? I, I think it's the, the very much the innovative, trend-setting, future-oriented look of the school that is within a growing college of health sciences. And I cannot understate the importance of working across the professional schools and being at UCI and being able, certainly as a researcher, working across the very broad range of research opportunities and collaborations we have within the college, within the campus. Certainly from a research standpoint, we also have uh, relationships with our um, Beal Applied Innovation, which is an amazing place that takes, helps our faculty and students actually take their research on, and turn it into things that are very useful to a community. We've got a great infrastructure for realizing the, the real value of research. And then on the other side of that, from our professional side, is we have a professional school in the PharmD program that's starting. And beyond the College of Health Sciences, we've got an amazing and growing academic medical center. And that's a huge deal for professional education because a large portion of professional education in pharmacy, medicine, nursing, public health is in medical centers. And being part of an academic medical center is even a bigger deal because you see the most complex patients and you're working with those that are very, very highly skilled in providing the care to those most complex patients. So we really have great things to offer on, on both sides, from the research side and the practice side, just because of our infrastructure. And, and I think at this moment in time for the school, it's also a great place because we are innovating and we're starting up and people that come here can help to actually form the school as we move forward in our future direction. Yeah, the foundation is, that is a compelling one. Well, I want to thank you so much 
for your time today, Dr. Hirsch. I, I was pleased, very pleased to come and talk with you here today. This has been great. Thank you very much for um, inviting me and having me on the program. Thank you. My guest was Dr. Jan Hirsch, founding dean of UCI's School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. We'll be right back with UCI political science professor Tony Smith, our analyst for the moment, as presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden selects his vice presidential running mate. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. My next guest is Tony Smith, UCI professor of political science to look into the crystal ball about the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden's vice president selection. A Twitter fiesta, a parlor game that's really heating up while we're in partial or full pandemic lockdown. Just before the pandemic closed in on California, I heard Tony offer a very compelling checklist rundown of where he thought this whole process was going to go. Tony, along with authors Anthony McGann, Michael Atner, Alex Kina, were previously on, and they had a, we got, had a look at his latest book on gerrymandering in America, the House of Representatives, Supreme Court, and the Future of Popular Sovereignty. Tony later published The Rise and Fall of War Crimes Trials. He's published on war crimes, gay rights, and human, tra human trafficking, and takes up how law and legal institutions fulfill or inhibit rights in the US and around the globe. He has three publications in the works now dealing with a follow-up of the gerrymandering book that moves to the state arena, which is so important. I can't wait until we get to do that interview when that book is out at in a year or so. And he has two other publications and we'll get a chance to talk about that. I hope when those books are also available. Tony Smith comes to us today from Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Tony Smith. Claudia, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's, it's a treat to have this back and forth today. I've been looking forward to it since we were starting to see when Joe Biden was projected to announce that we are having some interesting conundrums about when we were going to do this interview. And I really thank you for, for being open when we do it. It was originally, there wasn't going to be an announcement today at this recording, which is August 1st, but uh, it has now been delayed until August 10th. So uh, let's just start with whether the timing of that, or that delay, is that giving us any indicators or is that just him trying to tee this up right in advance of the Democratic National Convention, August 17th through the 20th? Well, I think that if you're, if you're the Joe Biden team right now, you've got kind of two competing ideas going on about how do you win this race. One of them is don't get in Trump's way. Stay out of the news. Let Trump self-destruct in front of folks. He just tweeted yesterday about beating Obama four years ago. The confidence level that folks have across the country in him has plummeted because of Trump's own 
actions and decisions. So you don't want to take attention away from the reasons you might want to vote for Biden that really have everything to do with Trump. But then you also kind of want to get some excitement going on for the people that are voting for Joe Biden, not just against Trump. And so one of the ways you kind of have to do that is roll out some drama. Yes. And we're getting plenty. My goodness. It's just, I think the slope is still rather steep. I mean, it's getting steeper, isn't it? Yeah, I think that if Team Biden had announced who the vice presidential selection was a month ago, we would already have moved on and we'd quit talking about it. So as early voting opens up in about six weeks, you want to make sure there's still an excitement level about things like the vice presidential pick. And we aren't going to have the kind of political convention that historically can kind of get the boots on the ground excited because there's not going to be day after day after day of a screaming auditorium full of enthusiastic folks. So we're sort of an unknown space about what's going to happen with the conventions. Will there be the typical convention bump or not? Right. Who the VP is maybe takes on a little more relevance than in prior years. Can I talk about that for just a second? Yes, there's a lot of ways we're gonna break this down. Go ahead. So there's a conventional wisdom in the press and the, and the political chattering class and even many people in the public and certainly in political science that who the vice president is doesn't really matter. And they have lots and lots and lots of empirical evidence they can, they can show for this. But I, I think we're in a different scenario We have three exceptions in history, in in modern history, besides just some generic white guy being the vice presidential candidate. And our only three exceptions are Lyndon Johnson, Sarah Palin, and um, Geraldine Ferraro. So let me talk about Lyndon Johnson first. Everybody says, oh yeah, well, Lyndon Johnson really made sure that Kennedy carried Texas. However, we do have to remember that there may have been ballot shenanigans, both in Texas and in Illinois, Mm -hmm. where ballot boxes got stuffed with Kennedy ballots uh, more than ballot boxes got stuffed with Nixon ballots. And so it's not clear to me (laughs) that if Johnson hadn't been the vice president, Kennedy would have lost somehow. So I kind of challenged that one. And then with Geraldine Ferraro, There was no scenario Walter Mondale was going to win that race. If this was a football game, you would call it a Hail Mary. Likewise with Sarah Palin. McCain was so clearly going to not win that race. It was a Hail Mary. And in in the corporate world, I'm sure your your listeners are familiar with the glass ceiling, the level above which women don't ever get promoted. But there's also another idea in in the corporate world called the glass cliff. And that is when you have a hopeless situation that you know is going to end up in disaster, you appoint a female to be in charge of it because then you at least get some moral credit claiming or moral badge claiming for having promoted a female. Um, And then when everything blows up, it's not your fault. So with Palin and with Ferraro, we can really look at these as women being put up to the edge of the glass cliff. So if we discount those, then we might say, look, If you put an African-American female in the slot of vice president for Joe Biden, you might create turnout excitement at the margin in one of the most traditionally loyal voting constituencies for the Democratic Party. So the people that say the vice presidency doesn't matter, well, we've never really tried anything besides generic white guy. So 
We'll see. It may not matter. It looks to me like we're heading towards a tsunami, a blue tsunami, but you know, it's still 95 days out or something like that. Although again, early voting starts sooner than that. Right, right. So exactly. Things, things could be different. Things could change. Who knows? Uh, the world is unpredictable. If, if 2020 has shown us anything, it's that. But I suspect that if Biden goes with an African-American female, we will see a turnout responsiveness in places where it matters. So for instance, if you got something like three to 5% more African-Americans turning out in the state of Georgia, then you flip Georgia to be a blue state. And I think we all understand Twitter is a biased sample of the American population, but, yeah. but Twitter is very much registering the essential aspect of an African-American woman to be the running mate for this particular election cycle. It's, it's very, very clear. And I, I have those conversations because of what I see on Twitter every hour. Yeah. Well, if we think of Twitter as a, an indicator of smoke signals or, or, you know, something is happening, it bubbles up in Twitter. A lot of the stuff that bubbles up in Twitter is nonsense. A lot of it's fake. You know, a lot of it's uh, just robots posting things. But there is a real belief, I think, among democratic activists yes. and democratic institutional workers that the time is long past for us to seriously think about African-Americans on the ticket or Latinos on the ticket or women on the ticket. And the idea that only white males need to apply, I think, is, is dead and buried from yeah. this analysis. And if you look at Biden's primary journey, African-American women particularly showed up in South Carolina at a staggering rate, and that turned the entire race around. Once you were out of these super small caucus, all-white states, well, then Biden was a juggernaut you couldn't beat, but he needed the loyalty of African-American voters and particularly African-American women to deliver that juggernaut's engine mm -hmm. so that he right. could go on to the other primaries. So why wouldn't he? Right. So right. we talked in advance of this interview about the brain trust. And so Twitter, I think, is, uh, is throwing in more into the brain trust than you're putting in of who's helping Joe Biden decide. You're not exactly in the inner sanctum, but you've got a finger on some of the posts. Who do you think is helping Joe Biden make this decision of the vice presidential running mate? Right. So here, here are some things about Joe Biden that everyone who works with him, knows him, or has watched him for 30, 40 years knows. One is that he's a profoundly decent human being. Two is he takes governance and governing very, very seriously. And three is he really makes up his own mind all the time. So he is not one of these folks that what his decision is going to be depends on the last person he spoke to. So I think he listens to people, but he is not especially influenced by people, if that makes sense. I think the team that is around him for the vice presidential search is primarily charged with vetting the candidates. And what we mean by that is making sure that there are no surprises if one of these people happen to be chosen, that you don't find out the next day that they've been arrested seven times or that they 
you know, have a secret family in Reno or, you know, a, a variety of things that could derail the campaign or derail the rollout of the vice president. So we keep hearing that there are four folks in the mix. So if you think about that, each one of these people have people around them that would prefer they get chosen for their own reasons. So if you happen to be somebody that would like to be a senator from the state of California, you might be very much in favor of Kamala Harris. If you're someone that would like to run for Karen Bass's uh, seat in LA, her House of Representatives seat, you might very much be pushing for her to be chosen. I see. Um, if you uh, want to be a senator in Massachusetts, you really want Elizabeth Warren to be chosen. So there are all sorts of reasons that people float ideas and rumors other than what's in Joe Biden's best interest. So when you see lots of uh, stuff coming out about one candidate or the other, it is almost always nonsense promoted by one of the competitors. So we can go through these four really quickly, and I'll kind of give you my rundown on, on each one of them. So let's start with Susan Rice. So the positives on Susan Rice are that Biden's known her for a very long time, likes her, they have a good relationship by all accounts, and she's probably fine from a vetting standpoint. The downside is she's never run a campaign for anything. She's never been subjected to the kind of scrutiny that a campaign brings. She's never walked across the stage and had to debate someone, much less somebody as unusual to interact with as, say, Mike Pence. So she's a completely unproven entity, and there's no electoral layers of support. So what I mean by that is she hasn't ever helped somebody who ran for city council get elected. She's never helped the mayor get elected. She's never helped a House member get elected. She's never done a fundraiser for a senator. She's done nothing that you would think of as delivering goodwill to the party-level structures that you need to get turnout where you need it to win. So she has some advantages, but it's also would be a strange choice because she's really not an elected politician and she doesn't have that kind of infrastructure support. Well, there's also name recognition though. That, I mean, yeah. it's implied with all those things, but, it's, uh, but right. I can see where you're saying the election sort of social infrastructure, the IOUs Absolutely. aren't there and, no, and the voters don't know who she is. And the voters don't know who she is. They're all gonna say who, probably. So then let's talk about Representative Bass. Now, the problem with her, there, there are really three. One, the one you've already kind of tapped on is name recognition. People don't know who House members are. They don't even know who their own House member is most of the time, much less a House member from somewhere else. So those kind of things aren't there, name recognition. She spoke glowingly about Fidel Castro for a while. She's kind of pulled back on those a little bit, but I promise you that will be a 24-7 ad running in South Florida, and it's enough to suppress enough of the Cuban vote. And also the people who are affiliated with Venezuela don't like dictators in general, that you might lose Florida over picking somebody like Karen Bass to be the vice president. And then she also spoke glowingly about the Church of Scientology, which has not been in the news for good things over the last 10 years. Wow. So you activate people that are very worried about churches like the Church of Scientology, and that might lose you a couple more states that could end up costing you the election. And you would hate to be Joe Biden and win the popular vote by four or five million votes 
and then narrowly lose the Electoral College by one vote. It would be damaging for the country. And it's not clear what Bass brings other than legislative competence. But there are plenty of people with legislative competence. And right now you have Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House. So it doesn't really matter what a House member from anywhere might want when you're going up against Nancy Pelosi, she runs a very tight rein on the House. So the Vice President is going to have special leverage with Pelosi just because it's a former House member. So that leaves us with the two senators, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. So let me start with Elizabeth Warren. It would be political malpractice to put Elizabeth Warren on the ticket. This is why. Massachusetts has a Republican governor who would appoint her replacement for the short term until there was a special election. That would be a devastating decision in the event you ended up winning a 50-50 split, and then you lose it, and it becomes a 49-51 Republican House majority. So you can't risk not being able to get enough Senate seats to make her seat irrelevant. You can't put her there. Secondly, and this is also true of Bass, Bass is 66, Warren is 70. Biden has talked about a generational transition. And you can't put somebody in there. What if, what if he runs two terms and then Bass is 74 when she's ready to run for election in her own right? So it, it seems to me unlikely that it would be somebody in their mid-60s or 70s for those sort of symbolic reasons and also practical reasons. So that leaves us with Kamala Harris. Now, there has been this rumor floating around that somehow Senator Harris wasn't contrite enough about being a tough competitor in the primary. A tough debater. A tough debater. Now, you have never heard a male candidate criticized in this way in any method at all. Have to anyway, think hard and long and still not get there. You yep. will never find them. And you saw people who, I mean, Ted Cruz was told by Donald Trump that his father assassinated Kennedy, his wife was ugly and insane, and Ted Cruz wasn't a citizen. And yet Ted Cruz would have crawled over broken glass to become the vice president for Trump. Yep. So this idea that somehow Senator Harris persisted in running for president during the primary, it's crazy. And if you look at any of the traditional metrics, did you stop when it became futile? That you, so you weren't going to be the nominee? Did you enthusiastically support the person that became the nominee? And then did you help them later on? She answers all of those metrics with a resounding yes. And the other thing that both she and Warren have in their favor is they have built these cross-country networks where they've helped politicians at every level get elected from county level commissioners and mayors to House members and other senators and governors. So they've been able to really up their national footprint. But again, you can't put Warren on there because that would put the Senate control in risk and it would just be absolutely malpractice. And secondly, if you've got a safe Senate seat or one that's absolutely going to become Republican if you take that person, you would always go with the safe Senate Democratic seat. So I think we get Kamala Harris. She did a great job on the debate stage, probably one of the better of all of the people running. She did a great job supporting him once the race was over. And she is directly palatable and exciting 
for a variety of different constituents in the Democratic Party. So I think you end up with Kamala Harris because she's just head and shoulders above the other candidates from a strategy standpoint. Look, any of the people that are being talked about, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Val Demings from Florida. Any of these people could be vice president and could be president and they would be fine doing it tomorrow. So it isn't to say that Elizabeth Warren is somehow not as capable of being president as Kamala Harris or that Val Demings could not be president just as easily as uh, Kamala Harris. I'm not saying that at all, but rather what I'm saying, if you look at which constituencies can get excited about the candidate, who can feel like there's a special outreach to them, Kamala Harris probably dots more I's and crosses more T's than the others. And she's incredibly good on TV. Her campaign did not win, but that doesn't mean it was badly run. And even the parts of it that were badly run were sort of the unimportant parts for somebody running the first time uh, for president. So uh, I think you're going to end up with Kamala Harris. And a lot of this is going on to create drama, but also a lot of it is going on as a last ditch effort to somehow disqualify her so other people's preferred candidate can move forward. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Tony Smith, UCI professor of political science. It's all about the Joe Biden vice presidential selection sweepstakes, baby, where the chatter is getting more and more intense on the way toward the anticipated announcement August 10th coming up. So I wanted to bring up the, one of those criteria that you mentioned was this, it's important that the candidate, you were talking about like national infrastructure and all that, but when we're looking at congressional incumbents and others, it's, it's important to that the candidate have been successfully elected statewide office. So that's where there are a number of other considerations. There are governors. I don't believe that they're all, none of the governors, the women, they're persons of color, correct? That's correct. That's correct. So, is, so that's why you didn't go to the list of governors yet. Yeah, I didn't go to the list of governors. I, I, I think that the governors are well-known in their states, but by and large, people don't know who governors are outside of states. So governors have been more successful running for president because they get to introduce themselves over the primary period. But senators tend to be more well-known. They're not you know, perfectly well-known, but they're more well-known because they tend to appear on news shows more often than governors do. If you're the governor of a state, you're going to go talk to your local news anchors anytime they want to talk to you. You don't really get that much from talking to Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Your, your constituents may wonder why you're talking to Wolf Blitzer instead of fixing their potholes and their drinking water and that kind of thing. So I, I don't think there's a governor currently in play. So when we're looking at the Democratic National Convention, the party platform planks coming yeah. out, there are pretty centrist policies in where it really, where people are watching maybe the most attentively. So is there any indication either of who might be figuring in the brain trust from the DNC or where that center of gravity for Joe Biden is to work around with his vice presidential selection? Look, I think Joe Biden wants what he had with Obama, which is people that basically, two people that basically agree more or less about most things within an arm's reach of each other. 
and that get along very well. And so even if, they, even if Biden disagreed with something Obama did, he could respectfully disagree. So what Biden doesn't want is somebody who completely disagrees with his agenda and will try to undermine it. Well, I really appreciate the chance to explore this. We'll find out uh, in about a week plus what's going to happen with the sweepstakes. And thank you, Tony Smith, for your time in covering this with me today. Thanks so much for having you, Claudia. As always, delightful and pleasurable. Great to see you. All right. Good talking to you. My guest was Tony Smith, UCI professor of political science, talking today about the sweepstakes of the Democratic presumed nominee, Joe Biden, picking the vice presidential running mate in 2020. Thanks again, Tony. Bye-bye. The extended portion of this interview with Tony Smith is available by going to my website, askaleader.com. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, attorney Teresa McQueen will return to the show to lay out how the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on gender discrimination is going to be operationalized at the workplace. Also, we'll hear from Madeline Hernis, Executive Director of Families Forward, with some updates this far into the pandemic. Next on these airwaves, SoCal New Waiver will return with a new installment of the Italo Connection. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks? Let's keep putting them on together, eh?